0: know what company is the perennial winner of the most hated company in America. Anyone know? It's Comcast. Comcast. I don't know if I don't know if Comcast is a player in Evansville or not, but as you may know, it's a cable TV and internet service provider. I've used Comcast in the past, and I can assure you that its reputation is well deserved. <laughs> Comcast is hated for many reasons. But number one is its customer service. And I want you to listen to how uh, an online tech magazine called Motherboard described it. In fact, I put it up on the screen so you can read it with me. For the better part of two decades, the news wires have been filled with horror stories about the dumpster fire that passes for Comcast customer service. From expletive-laced insults to simply refusing to let users cancel service, Comcast has long provided a master class to any company looking for a lesson on how not to behave when dealing with paying customers now that is a scathing indictment and it's really you know it's really not just their customer service that causes people to hate comcast they've been accused of throttling internet speeds charging ridiculous prices violating net neutrality and more in fact here's what's really interesting comcast's own employees hate comcast they consistently rank comcast as a terrible place to work and Humorously, the number one reason they give for hating it is its customer service. <laughs> Have you ever wondered what it would be like to work for a company that everyone hates? Like when you're sitting at a at a party, or sitting in an, or when you're at a party, or sitting on an airplane, and someone asks, "What do you do?" Would you want to tell them that you work for Comcast? Because like you know the reaction you're going to get. If the person asking you doesn't spit in your face, they're likely to recoil at the news you work for them at the very least. Maybe they'll run through a litany of the reasons they hate your company. See, I know this is how people react to that kind of thing because most of my adult life has been spent working in an organization that most people hate, uh, the local church. There was a day not all that long ago when churches were generally high regarded as an important part of the fabric of America, but no longer. Most people hate the church even a lot of Christians. And if you ask people their opinion of the church, they'll tell you, they'll say it's oppressive or it's anti-intellectual or it's rigid. Both sexually backwards and sex-obsessed at the same time. Intolerant, boring. In fact, boring churches often fodder for jokes about the church, like this one. Church provided coffee after the sermon as a way of encouraging people to stay around and talk and get to know one another. Pastor of the church asked a little boy, in the church, if he understood why the church served coffee, the little boy replied, I think it's to get the people awake before they drive home. (laughs) Boring. Church is so boring, people will say. Many people will tell you that it's hurtful. Tell you all kinds of ways that the church has hurt them, rejected them, judged them, wounded them, mistreated them. Whole books have been written about that, in fact. They'll say the church is outdated, it's irrelevant, it's a dying institution. Movies and TV shows depict the church as mean-spirited and ignorant. People who lead churches are either pedophiles or all about money, hucksters, praying on the weak and the weak-minded. People are not shy about giving you their opinion about the church, and it is usually negative. But wouldn't it be fascinating to know what Jesus thinks about His church? Like, what if it weren't just any average person that was offering their evaluation of the church? What if it were Jesus himself? Because in reality, it's his opinion that matters, no one else's. What if you got home this afternoon, and there was an email in your inbox that had the name Jesus Christ on it, and when you opened it up, it was addressed to you as a city church attender, and it said in the subject line, my evaluation of city church. Would you be interested in that? Because as crazy as it sounds, that happened to the people who made up seven churches in the Roman province of Asia in the first century. Not the email part, obviously. But they each did get a letter with Jesus' evaluation from Jesus of each of the seven churches. And at the end of each letter, Jesus says this, whoever has ears, whoever has ears let them hear what the Spirit says to to the churches, meaning, meaning that these evaluations of these churches are relevant to all churches throughout history, to city church included. In fact, it would be fair to say that the issues that Jesus addresses in each of these churches are characteristic to some degree of every single church throughout history. And so as we launch into this new year and into another year in the life of City Church, I thought it'd be wise for us to look closely at these seven letters as a way of evaluating City Church, where we're doing well, where we can improve. And so this morning we begin a new series, it's called Seven Letters. These letters can be found in the book of Revelation at the end of your Bible, chapters uh, 2 and 3. But we're not going to really dig into those letters until next week, because this morning I think it's very important for us to understand the background of these letters, and to remind ourselves this morning of why the church even matters. So I want you to go to Revelation chapter 1. Turn to Revelation chapter 1 at the end of your Bible. Revelation chapter 1. Now while you're turning there, let me just give you a little context. The book of Revelation was written about uh, 60 years after Jesus' crucifixion and after His resurrection. It was written by the Apostle John, one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. And it was written, the whole book, the, le- the book of Revelation was written to seven specific Churches. Now, there were more than seven churches around back then, but the seven specific churches, the book of Revelation was written to, and the seven letters that we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks were located in the Roman province of Asia, which I'm going to put it on a slide up here behind me. You can see uh, these seven letters were located in what is now modern-day Turkey. These churches, by the time these letters are written somewhere between 35 and 45 years old. I want to start this morning with the purpose behind these letters, and in fact, the purpose of the entire book of Revelation. And let me just say it this way, that the book of Revelation was written to encourage Christians who were suffering under severe persecution. I'll say that again. The book of Revelation was written to encourage Christians suffering under severe persecution. Now these seven churches that Jesus was writing to were indeed under intense persecution for their faith in Christ under the cruel hand of the Roman emperor at the time, Domitian. Domitian made a law, listen to this, Domitian made a law that no Christian, I'm going to quote this, no Christian once brought before the tribunal should be exempted from punishment without renouncing his religion. And so a variety of fabricated stories were composed during his reign to injure Christians. If famine or pestilence or earthquakes affected afflicted the Roman provinces, Christians were blamed. Their property was often confiscated. They were killed, crucified, boiled in oil, other forms of persecution, some of which we'll read about in the seven letters in the weeks ahead. In fact, This is probably why Jesus chose these seven churches specifically, because they were under such severe persecution. Jesus wanted these people to know that they were in a spiritual war. Physically, like physically, it would have appeared to them that Domitian was the cause of their pain and suffering. But behind Domitian and the Roman Empire, behind the curtain that divides the temporal from the eternal, the force behind Domitian was Satan whose emissaries sought to stamp out the revolution of Jesus Christ before it picked up momentum. Jesus wanted these people and these churches to rise to the occasion and to stand tall in the face of persecution. And so to encourage them, he reveals himself in a post-resurrection, post-ascension vision to the apostle John, one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, who was himself in exile on the Greek island of Patmos for his faith in Christ. I want you to listen to how John describes this vision in chapter 1. On the Lord's day, verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Myrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double edged sword, his Face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, we're going to talk about some of the symbolism in those verses in a moment. We're not going to get into all of that. But these people in these churches needed an awe inspiring vision of Jesus, victorious, in all of his power, in all of his glory. Because if you're suffering persecution, as many Christians have throughout human history, and as many people today are around the world, and and I hope you will listen to me on this, as is increasingly becoming more and more of a reality in America and will likely increase in the future in America. What you need to know when you're suffering persecution is that your suffering is not in vain, that it is for a purpose, that you are on the winning side. And so Jesus gives them this vision of himself to encourage them that no matter how it looks now that Satan will not have the last word that Jesus Christ will be victorious. And if you've ever read the book of Revelation, you know it's often difficult to understand all of its like particulars. Even theologians don't agree on the meaning behind all of the particulars. But the big picture message of the book is clear, Jesus wins. And will reign victorious over the earth in the end, and every human power, even Domitian, every knee will bow before him. And I want to ask you can you imagine suffering persecution without the book of Revelation, without knowing that in the end Jesus is victorious, feeling every day that you're losing the battle, wondering why you're suffering and if it really matters? In His goodness, in His great goodness and mercy, God has reassured us in the book of Revelation that Jesus is the ultimate power in the universe. And that no matter how many things may look right now, no matter how difficult the persecution is, you are on the right side of the battle and your suffering is not in vain. This book has served as an incredible encouragement to suffering Christians throughout all of human history. And it was written for that purpose to these seven churches. It's written to encourage these Christians who are suffering under persecution and Christians throughout human history who have suffered persecution. But there's something else I want you to understand this morning as we prepare to examine these letters in the coming weeks and as we launch into the new year. Do you understand that the church is the hope of? Of the world, Do you understand that the church is the hope of the world with all of its flaws, with all of its brokenness, with its less than perfect leaders, the ignored, despised, ridiculed, even hated local church is the hope of the world. Look at the first verse of chapter 2. Jesus says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, he's telling John this, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, all of this imagery, let's face it, it sounds very weird. And if you read the book of Revelation, if you've read it before, you've probably noticed that it is full of images and metaphors that are sometimes hard to understand. Why? Well, understand that what is happening here in the book of Revelation is that Jesus is pulling back the curtains that separate the temporal world in which we live and the spiritual reality behind it. And so the apostle John often finds himself trying to describe what he has been allowed to see behind the curtain, but grasping at comparisons and metaphors that will help us just get a glimpse, understand just a little of what he saw. Now, in this case, the angel of the church at Ephesus to which John was to write is probably a reference to the pastor of the church. The word angel is the Greek word angelos, which means messenger. Usually, it refers to angelic beings, but it can also refer to human messengers. And since there's no other discussion in the New Testament about angels who watch over churches, and even if there were such angels, John wouldn't be writing a letter to an angelic being, it's probably the pastor of the church. Please feel free to think of me as an angel too, if you would like. <laughs> my family does. <laughs> Fortunately, Jesus tells us very specifically at the end of chapter 1 what these other symbols mean. Look back at chapter 1, verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20. It says, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches. Those are probably the pastor's. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so what Jesus says is that he is walking amongst these seven churches. And here's what I want to focus on as we close this morning. Notice again what it says about Jesus in verse 1. That the Lord God, the Messiah, the King of the universe walks among these churches, meaning that he is intimately aware of everything that goes on in them. He's intimately involved with these churches. I have no idea if the book of Revelation and these particular letters ever made their way to the Roman emperor Domitian. I suspect not. But can you imagine how ridiculous the concept would have sounded to him if he did, that these people worshipped a king who was more concerned about the happenings within seven tiny non- descript churches in an outpost of the Roman Empire than the affairs of the Roman government. You imagine how ridiculous that must have sounded to him. You imagine how ridiculous this would sound today to say a power broker on Wall Street or to a politician working in the corridors of power in Washington, D.C. or the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. There are whole television networks devoted to following what happens on Wall Street and what happens in Washington, D.C. The whole world anxiously watches what happens in these places. CEOs are sought after, paid huge sums of money, often for their wisdom and their expertise. And yet the king of the universe isn't walking among the brokerage firms on Wall Street. He's not monitoring the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. He's not watching C-SPAN or walking through the halls of Congress. He's not walking among the Fortune 100 companies in america what's he doing he's closely monitoring walking among intimately involved with one of the most despised and ridiculed and ignored places on earth the church and listen and i hope this doesn't sound too harsh this morning because i love you guys very very much but let's speak openly and honestly the church is ignored even by christians it's an afterthought Articles and news reports everywhere are proudly proclaiming the death of the local church in America. But let's face it, the church isn't dying because of anything outside the walls of the church. It's dying because we don't care about it. As long as my kids don't have a soccer game or a baseball game on a Sunday, as long as I don't have other plans, I'll go to church. I'll give it an hour on Sunday morning when it's convenient, but that's it. Besides, I can just listen to the sermon online, and that's just as good. But I'm not getting into a life group. I'm not coming to a, uh, through the week for a class to learn more about my faith. And I'm certainly not going to a prayer service. I mean, let's face it. It's dying because of what's happening within, not because of what's happening without. What is it? Why in the world is the king of the universe so deeply concerned and so intimately involved with these seven churches and, by the way, this church, City Church, today, and not the inner workings of, say, Google. What is it Jesus knows that we don't know? What is it he knows that the world doesn't know about the local church? Here it is. I'm going to tell you. And this, this isn't new to those of you who attend City Church regularly because I say this frequently. Jesus knows that the problem with the world is not ultimately an economic, educational, sociological, or governmental problem. The problem with the world is sin in the human heart. And no business, no school, no governmental agency is equipped to deal with that. Listen to the Apostle Paul writing uh, actually to this same church in Ephesus 40 years earlier. He's describing God's plan for the world, and he says this, He says, his intent, he's talking about God. God's intent was that now, through the church, not Congress, not the White House, not the Fed, not the World Bank, not Google, not Apple, not AT&T, not Harvard, not Yale, not Princeton, but through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. What is that manifold wisdom? What is it he's talking about? It's the cosmic story behind all stories. The cosmic unfolding of God's plan throughout human history. The plan that was hatched before the beginning of time to establish his kingdom on earth and to reveal his glory and his goodness to the whole world. The plan that looked ruined, destroyed, almost before the story even began, when the subjects of the kingdom rebelled against the king in Genesis chapter 3 and threw the world into chaos. But oh no, the story doesn't end there because God would send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to rescue the world from chaos and destruction by dying on a Roman cross for humanity's rebellion, its sin. And three days later, he would be resurrected from the grave signaling that death had been conquered and that a new day had come. And one day in the future he will come back to earth and establish his kingdom on earth, a glorious kingdom over which he will rule and reign and as it was always intended to be, and every knee and every tongue will bow before every knee will bow before the king of kings and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. That is the manifold wisdom of God. And it is the church to which God has given that message. And it is the church that God has supernaturally empowered to carry that message. And it is the church that stewards the message of the hope of the world. All of the important things that go on that the world pays such breathless attention to, what Google is doing, what the president is doing, what NASDAQ did today, all of that is like a bunch of doctors huddled around a patient with a terminal illness arguing about where to locate a Band-Aid. Only the church carries the cure for the world. That's why, in the midst of the great and mighty and powerful and invincible Roman Empire, by the way, it was so invincible that it doesn't exist today. Jesus is walking among seven obscure churches in Asia because what happens there on any given day makes anything that happens in the buildings in the Roman Forum seem as important as a couple of kids playing army with plastic soldiers. That's why he's walking among the churches. Here's what I would like to challenge you with before we plunge into these seven letters here at the beginning of a new year. I'd like to challenge you to reevaluate your attitude toward the church in general, but certainly your involvement and your participation in this church, City Church. Look, I want to tell you something. There is no perfect church. You're going to see that in the letters in the coming weeks. Nevertheless, listen to me. As As goes the church so goes the world. As goes the church, so goes the world. Is that how you see the church? If you saw the church the way Jesus sees it, if you understood the central importance of the church to the course of human history, how would that change your priorities, your perspective, your attitude toward the church? How would it change the way you spend your time, your money? How would it change the way you parent and what you would have your kids involved in? And please understand, when I'm talking about the church, Jesus isn't concerned at all about this building. The church is us collectively and every other Christ-believing, Christ-proclaiming, Christ-worshiping group of believers around the world. It is our spiritual development and well being, our commitment to one another, our portrayal of our priorities to the rest of the world, our witness to our little corner of the world. That's the church that Jesus is concerned about. What would change if you understood the central importance of the church to human history? Would you make it more of a priority to worship the King of Kings with the rest of the church community? Do you realize that when you gather with fellow believers and worship Christ, your presence here, seen, honestly, by those driving by even, simply by the cars in the parking lot on a Sunday morning, and by those that you know well, your physical presence here, when you explain to them how you spent your time on Sunday, do you realize that you're saying to them, that the reigning powers that be, the prince of the power of the air, as Satan is called in the Bible, do you realize that you're telling them that he isn't the king that he thinks he is? That there's another king, another kingdom, and it's coming one day in its fullness and its power and its glory. Do you realize that when you gather with other believers, that you're saying to the rest of the world that man is not ultimate? You are saying that God is gathering to himself a people for his kingdom. When you worship the risen Christ every Sunday, you're telling the world that in your life for this moment, Christ is ultimate. He is to be worshiped above all else. You're making a statement to the world that there is someone deserving of more adulation and worship than the lesser things to which we pledge allegiance. You're inviting them. You're inviting the people in your world to ask you, why do you think the kingdom of God is better than the kingdom of man? What is it about Christ that gets you to roll out of bed, get dressed, get your family dressed, hop in the car, and go to church every single Sunday? What is it about him that makes you want to study his word in a class on a Wednesday night or to gather with a small group of his people on a weeknight? That's what's happening, you see when you are physically present worshiping the risen Savior, you are proclaiming to the world the reality of the King of Kings. And as you begin this new year, could I ask you to evaluate your attitude toward the local church and how your priorities would change if you realized that the church is the hope of the world? Would you change your schedule to be here on Sunday mornings, or if not here, some other church? Would you do that? Let's fill the church, not ignore the church. Would you change your priorities and commit to grow spiritually with a group of people in a city life group? Would you do that? Would you change your priorities and attend a discipleship class here to learn more about your faith? Would you change your priorities so that you can give more financially to the church this year so that we can do more to make disciples and to work toward our vision? These are some things that are big asks, I understand. But as goes the church, so goes the rest of the world. The church is the hope of the world. Somehow the king of kings understands that. We seem to have lost sight of that. And by the way, I include me in that. It becomes very easy as a pastor to just go through the motions and to just do church because it's Sunday. Sundays come with stunning regularity. And so you you can get into a routine of just doing church. I need to reevaluate my priority to the church, or my commitment, my attitude, my my priorities as it relates to the church. And I'm asking you to do the same because the church is the hope of the world. And as goes the church, so goes the rest of the world. Would you bow with me for prayer this morning? Would you take a moment now and silently... Evaluate your own attitude toward the church. Do you see it as the hope of the world? Maybe you need to own the fact that you've ignored it, abandoned it, ridiculed it, considered it as an afterthought. Maybe today is the day that you need to make a new commitment to your part in the church not to the building but to the body of believers around your commitment to grow spiritually your commitment to proclaim the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ to the people in your world Lord Jesus I confess that it becomes very easy for me as a pastor to consider your church as an afterthought. There's so much in the world that seems so much more important at a human level. But Lord Jesus Christ, would you take us back to that verse in chapter 2 verse 1 in the book of Revelation where you remind us that you are walking amongst the seven churches because you recognize that the church is the hope of the world. Would you give us that same sense of commitment to it? Thank you, Lord Jesus, that the church is your body, that you died on the cross for the sins of humanity and that your body consists of those people who understand, who believe that. And who believe that you were resurrected from the dead. And who believe that there is a kingdom coming one day. Thank you for what you've done on our behalf, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name that we worship and pray.